My sister and I have a tradition of giving ridiculous and useless gifts to each other. Every Christmas and birthday, it's the same. It's wildly different, but it's, it's the same. You see, some people give gifts to uh, let people know they thought about you. Hey, I, I saw this in whatever store or whatever town, and, and it made me think about you, and I, I wanted to give this to you. Some people give gifts around birthdays or Christmas to, to let people know that they're loved. Hey, I, I really love you, and I put some, some effort and, and heart into this. Or, or some people give very practical gifts. Hey, I, I know that you need this thing, and I got it for you. You're welcome. I, I hope you enjoy it. That's not the case with my sister and I. The, the sole purpose of gift giving in my family with my sister is to get them to laugh. And, and if you can get the other person to say, what is this? <laughs> That's all the better. Is there anyone else in the room that likes to give gag gifts? Or am I the only one? Oh, thank goodness, okay. I knew my family was weird, but at, at least there's six of us that are also just as weird. So, yeah, my sister has given some doozies in the past. Uh, when she first found out that I was going into full-time youth ministry, she hopped on Amazon and bought me the old 1970s flannel graph. And the, uh, the felt Bible characters, the super cartoony-looking ones for Adam and Eve and for David and Goliath, um, that's sitting in a closet somewhere. Uh, if you're in high school or junior high, I don't intend to pull out the flannel graph, but I might, so be ready. Um, a couple years after that, she, you've probably seen the, the custom socks where you can put a, a face of a dog or a, a kid on there. Well, she got me socks, not with my dog's face, but her dog's face. <laughs> Two pairs of socks. <laughs> and I've never worn them, and she knew I never would. They are in a closet somewhere. Uh, things really took a whole nother level this Christmas when my sister went all out and got Chloe and I together this poster. If you're online, you may not be able to see it. If you're in the back, you may not be able to see it. What's going on is this is a, a picture of Dolly Parton. And the top says, WWDD, what would Dolly do? Because you know as well as I that everyone in Tennessee lives by this principle. Yeah, thank you. What would Dolly do? What would Dolly do in this situation? So I, guess what, took this out of a closet somewhere to, to bring it in today. It has not made it to our wall yet. And uh, Chloe, I don't know if it's ever going to make it on our wall. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. We're in a series called What is Jesus Doing? And um, we're kind of playing off the... The, the age-old question, what would Jesus do? WWJD. And uh, you may remember I've got a picture of these, these old-school bracelets. Joel mentioned these. A lot of us had them. I, too, had the old-school WWJD woven bracelet. Um, I had a green one, a forest green one, and uh, wore that all the time. That was, that was my thing. There they are. Yep. Um, and I just wanted to, to give you a glimpse into my my previous life, if that's okay. There's a picture of me when I wore these bracelets. Look at that. That's great. Can you even tell who I am? I'm the guy on the front left, eyes closed, smiling. Hey. <laughs> you can't see my wrist, but I've got a WWJD bracelet on. I'm sporting that. And uh, I've got the, you know, the straight across haircut, which I sported until my sophomore year of college. And uh, 
I grew a beard and everything changed. But yeah, so that was that. Was that. But I want to say this morning, the, the what would Jesus do? I think that's a good question. I think that's a good way for us to, to model our behavior after the way that Jesus would do it. I think it's a good question. I don't think it's the best question. I think it's certainly a better question than what would Dolly do. So we're moving in the right direction. But I want to know, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus up to right now, in our midst? Because the question, what would Jesus do, implies a sense of distance. You know what I mean? Like, what would Jesus do if he were here? I'm here to tell you, he's here. Jesus is here. So the question isn't, man, if Jesus was around, what would he think about this? It's, no, Jesus, what are you thinking? What are you doing right here, right now? Because if Jesus isn't doing anything, we've got no hope. But Jesus is here, and Jesus is doing a great deal in our midst this morning, and that's good news. Because I'm going to be honest with you guys, I need him. Anyone else just say, I need him. I need him. I need Jesus to be doing something. There's too much pain. There's too much gross injustice. There's too much suffering in our current situation for Jesus to not be doing something about it. The good news is he is. We're walking through this What Is Jesus Doing series through the book of Hebrews. I invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is a very dense work. It's a very deep work. I encourage you to to read through it in one sitting because it was originally written to be received in that way. It takes you about 45 minutes to hear the whole thing in one and and you'll see how how patterns and themes are woven through the whole work. Last week we we studied just those first four verses about the supremacy of Christ, the Son of God. And, And this week we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 14 and work our way through chapter 5, verse 10. I'll give you another second to to turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14. I'd like to invite all of you to stand for the reading of God's word. You can follow along in your Bibles or, or just listen with your ears, but however... My prayer this morning is that these words would would penetrate down to a heart level, that these would not just remain words in an abstract or or thoughts in our brain, but these would would truly change us. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. 
This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son of God, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of his word in our hearing this morning. You may be seated. So we've got a lot to work through this morning. And so I'm gonna do my best to make it simple and followable. So I just want to come right out of the gate swinging with what is gonna serve as our thesis this morning as the central idea for this chunk of text. Here it is. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. That's what Hebrews chapter five, verse nine says. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. If you're taking notes with the note cards that came in the bulletin, that's at the top, that's bold, that's underlined, that's got stars next to it. We're gonna wave through a lot this morning, but this is the point, that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand is what exactly that means. If Jesus is doing something, and if him being the source of eternal salvation is good news for us, then what exactly does that mean? See, sometimes in the, in the modern West, we have a very limited view of salvation. Uh, it's like we've locked it away in a prison cell, and, and where salvation is confined only to things that happen in the past or in the future. See, we think of salvation in terms of what Christ has done on the cross, an act that is finished, or, and or, in terms of what happens to us after we die. We go to heaven. Salvation is not only that, friends, and this is good news. This word eternal, we need to think about that a minute because this is also a word that has been locked away in our minds and we need to set it free because when we talk about eternal salvation, eternal life, Oftentimes we think about, we go to heaven after we die. But if we take that word seriously, eternal, outside of the bounds of time, doesn't just mean that it moves forward forever in time, it means that it moves backward forever in time. That Jesus is savior, not just of our future, not just of our life after we die, but he's our savior of this life now. That he's the redeemer of everything that's been done and that we have done that there is no space in time that Jesus is not savior over. Now, if that seems a little heady, that's okay. Strap in. But I want you to know this morning that salvation has so much more to do with your life right now than you may realize. Don't allow salvation to only be about your life after you die. Let Jesus 
reign in salvation in your life right now. Salvation is the act of God to unite earth and heaven. It's much broader than just your own personal standing with God, where you get to go after you die. This is about all of earth and all of heaven becoming one. And it's happening right now. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, how exactly he does that. The first way Jesus does this is in his exaltation. His exaltation. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation through his exaltation. If you're taking notes, that's bullet number one, his exaltation. Let's take a look at the beginning of this passage and wanna throw out a quick, uh, quick advice for understanding the Bible. Verse 14 starts with the word therefore. Whenever you come to that word in the Bible, ask yourself, what is the therefore there for? Thank you. You'll remember that now, whoever laughed. You've got that one locked in. What's the therefore therefore? In other words, what's the context? What's he been saying before this in order to say this? Well, we're going to pop up at verse 13 and read from there. He says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Friends, Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is King of the universe. He is over all and in all and through all. All things were created by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He holds all things together. And that includes your life. That includes the breath that is entering and exiting your lungs right now. That includes your family. That includes your work situation. That includes all. Jesus is Lord, and he is exalted in the heavens. He is at the right hand of God, ready to judge. Because as verse 13 tells us, nothing escapes his sight. And do we not need a God of judgment? A lot of folks, you know, skirt back at this this notion because judgment isn't one that we're particularly comfortable with. But we need a God who does something about all the evil in the world, do we not? Because it's running rampant. Because too many people are dying. Too many people have cancer. Too many people suffer with depression. Too many people have to deal with losing loved ones. And we need a God who is gonna do something about it. And Jesus is our source of salvation because he reminds us, I've got this. I've got this. I know it doesn't look like it now, but I've got this. Nothing escapes my sight. And if you'll wait with me, it's gonna come. Judgment is coming. Now there's a motif that we need to uh, look at here, and that's the great high priest. For now, suffice it to say, a priest is a mediator. A priest is a mediator between God and man. If you wanna look more into this, I suggest take a look at Leviticus 16, uh, specifically the Day of Atonement. Broadly, all of Leviticus is a, is a uh, 
a guidebook to the priests. Numbers 16 through 18 is a great narrative to just understand the role of a priest um, that God set up to, to be a mediator between God and man. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the best kind of priest because he's a mediator that not only understands God, but he understands us. He understands us. More on this in a second. But with looking at what Jesus does, we must also ask ourselves, what must we do? And the author of Hebrews is pretty clear. Because Jesus is exalted, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Let's hold on. We must hold on. This is kind of coming from an idea of grip strength. It takes some grit to hold on to faith, does it not? Those of you who have been through a lot, you've walked this pilgrimage for a long time. There's sometimes when it feels very strong, and there's sometimes where it feels like this is all you've got, but we must hold on. A buddy of mine in high school, everywhere he drove, he had a tennis ball in uh, the cup holder of his car, and he always drove with his left hand and squeezed the tennis ball with his right. And I was like, Jake, what are you doing? And he's like, I want to have stronger grip. <laughs> and all the guys are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and all the girls are like, that's so dumb. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what a tennis ball could be in your life of faith. What is a practice that you can continue to come back to to strengthen your grip on our confession of faith? Food for thought. Here's where we get to the real meat. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation because he has empathy. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, we do not have a great high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I wanna talk about empathy for a minute. Your translation may say sympathy, uh, but I want to be clear that the Greek root words where this is coming from, the root words are with and suffer. We're talking about empathy. If you don't know in, in the English language, the difference between empathy and sympathy is, sympathy is I can, I can feel with you, I can feel for you, um, I'm sad where you're sad. Empathy is, I've walked in your shoes. I know how that feels. Emotionally, I am with you more than someone who does not understand. This is crucial for our understanding of Christ because he is the exalted son of God and he came as a human to live a human life and he gets it. He understands he feels what we feel. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a friend. John chapter 11. Jesus knows what it's like to cry. Jesus knows what it's like to be stressed out. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. So we encounter a savior through the gospels who can raise people from the dead but who experienced and wept at the death of his friend. We experience a savior in the gospels who cast out demons out of people and who felt exhausted. And through many moments in the gospels, if you're paying attention, he gets away from his disciples, he gets away from everything and sits up on a mountain by himself with God 
And I'm like, yes, I get it. And he's like, yeah, I get it. This life is exhausting. He gets it. As I said, suffer with. This is a Jesus, this is a Savior who has suffered with us in every way. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, so he knows what abuse is. He knows what humiliation is. He knows what being utterly rejected is. Isaiah says he was indeed a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And here's the thing about Jesus. He might not just take all your grief away. In my case, he hasn't. I'm not saying he won't. He's Jesus. He can do whatever he wants. But he might not. But he is going to sit with you in it and understand. And in the moment where your soul cries out for nothing more than a hug, nothing more than someone to get it, Jesus is there. And he gets it. And he's with you in your time of suffering. So what must, me, what must we do? The author of Hebrews says, we must approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Timely assistance, just in the nick of time. Many of you know what this looks like in your life. But I want to talk about prayer. Approaching the throne of God with confidence. We must draw near, as some translations say. We must approach God in our prayers with the kind of confidence that comes from a relationship that I can say what I need to say. If you would imagine the type of situation like a wartime, and I need some supplies now, that's how we can pray, to get timely assistance with confidence in what God has done for our relationship because this is a war, this is a battle, and he's ready to help us in our time of need. This calls for more honest prayers, more robust prayers, more real prayers, raw prayers, prayers about how we truly feel. And these are modeled in the Psalms, in Habakkuk, in the prophets, many prayers in the Bible. I want to read as a contemporary example a, a psalm that, that someone wrote modeled after the pattern we get in the psalms of lament, of crying out to God in our pain and our suffering. I resonate with this so deeply, and I wonder if you may resonate with this as well, and I, I challenge you to allow this to inform the way that you pray this afternoon, this week, this is called the feeling of isolation. Almighty God, ruler and judge, hear my prayer. Answer my petition. I'm the only one left. Like a soul tree after a raging forest fire, like a house still standing in the line of a storm. All around me have fallen asleep. Too overcome by the trials of life, too enticed by the luxuries of this world. Am I crazy to still trust in your word? Am I insane to believe you mean what you say? Am I a lunatic for confiding in a God who seems so far away? You sit back as the world spreads lies. 
You watch silent as kids' families are torn apart, like a wolf watching its pups are mauled by a bear. Where are you to protect the innocent? Where are you to defend your name? Don't you care that mockers ridicule you? Don't you care that believers fall away? Even in the church, you take a back row seat to our feelings and emotions, justifications and ignorance. You sit back as leaders of your church tell your children to find their own way, find your own truth, do what feels good, love yourself first. These words aren't absolute, just guidelines. These words don't apply to today. They're outdated and out of touch. You stand by as other pastors beat the Bible over our heads. These words should shame and convict you for what you've done. God hates this. God hates that. God hates both the sin and the sinner. How could you wear that? How could you say that? This generation will come to no good. How long will you stay silent? How long will you watch from afar? If you tarry, all will be gone. If you tarry, I fear I too will be lost. It's scary and lonely to stand all alone. How will I defend my faith when all around me scoff? Even to my closest friends, will I be called a bigot? Unloving? A Pharisee? How do I live by your words but also walk in your love? God, even in this time, even when you seem far, even when I don't hear your words, I know you to be true. I will stand on your foundation. I will rest in your truth. Give me strength. Embolden me. You alone are holy. Amen. This is a prayer rising from the depths of the heart. This is a prayer unfiltered by what we think we should be feeling. And it's the kind of prayer God desires. Because Jesus gets it. Because he has come and drawn near to be with us, he will receive our prayers from the depths of despair. So be honest with God. Draw near to him. Lastly, we need to talk about Jesus' example. Chapter 5 talks about how the great high priest uh, back in the Old Testament times did not appoint themselves, did not seek glory for themselves, but was appointed by God. And Christ was in the same way that, that though he was God's son, he learned obedience. Through what? Through suffering. Again, he gets it. He gets the loud cries and, and, and prayers with, with loud cries and tears. But we are to follow after Jesus' example, who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming the form of a servant. For more on this, I encourage you to read Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. But we must, like Christ, not seek the ways of the world, not seek to gain anything from anyone, but instead to receive. Receive the gift of being God's child. And let that be enough. That you are God's son, you are God's daughter. And that's enough. We have no need to grasp at things that the world tells us is gonna make us happy. 
We have no need to chase after the rat race of society. For we have what we need in him and in him alone. Jesus gives an example throughout the Gospels, and we must follow him. If we follow him to suffering, let it be to suffering. Because we will follow him in a resurrection like his. That as we share in his death, we will also share in his rising. Amen? That as we share in his sufferings on this earth, we will share in his glorification. Amen? Let's follow him. This morning, if you'd like to choose to follow him for the first time, to follow him into the waters of baptism, signifying the death of yourself, the suffering of this world, and the subsequent resurrection of new life, I invite you to do that. The band's gonna come out and play, and if you want to respond to follow him by, by prayer, you're invited to do that. If you'd like to come forward and speak with a counselor, you're welcome to do that as well. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you. We thank you for giving us an example. We thank you for sympathizing with our every weakness. We thank you for being exalted in the heavens. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to know a little bit deeper in our hearts who you are, that we may be set free from the tyranny of sin and released into a world of hope. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.